Welcome back. It's Green Left Radio Breakfast. It's 2016, and you are listening to 3CR 8.55am. Good morning, and this morning we have got special guest, Andrea Bunting from Climate Action Moreland and the Socialist Alliance in the studio. Uh, good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Zane. Um, hang on one second. I will just check. You're going to talk again. I'll just check yes, it here. Yes, Microphone one. All right. I might just get you to try that one. Okay. How's that going? That sounds like a bit of a better microphone. Okay. I'll move this one away. Yes. All right. Um, happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you. Is this the f- we're starting early this this time. Is this uh, this yeah. is a new slot for us, isn't it? Starting like an hour early. Well, well everyone's getting ready to go to work. The working class. Yes. Up and having your breakfast or off to work. And uh, have some, there's some great news stories we've got today, haven't we? And music and interviews. Ah, how was your uh, New Year period? Well, um, you know, trying to have a big clean-up. One, no, one of those one in 20 year clean-ups, which is great fun. Been doing a bit of painting. That's, you know, house painting, not... Artistic painting, and yeah, it's been a good relaxing time, but it's sort of getting getting back into the swing of things now. Yeah. How about yourself? Um, I've been doing some stuff. Um, had a really lazy New Year's, um, and that was very nice because there's been a lot of hard work happening, and sometimes it's good to just put your feet up. Absolutely, I've been feeling like that myself, and I'm sure our li- listeners are too, but you know, the year is starting again, and many people are getting back to work, I think, in this week and next week. School is starting next week. Indeed. It's all go. All right. Now, um, I'm a bit like the work experience kid this morning. Um, I hope not. I don't know how to use the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I'm, I'm learning to drive got my L plates on, and I'm just going to belatedly play our intro so there can be no mistake as to the fact that you're listening to Green Left Radio. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Uh, so, what's our uh, what's our first news item this morning? Well, I think we're talking about climate change. Climate change. Yes. That issue. <laughs> well, we do have a fabulous interview coming up today uh, with John Englart, who's a citizen reporter at the Paris Climate Talks. Yes. So that's a bit of a scoop. Yeah, that'll be good. 
I'm, uh, I'm keen to hear from someone who was actually there and saw it all go down. Um, yeah, so there's an article in the New Green Left, first one for the year, called Ruminants and Methane, Not the Fault of the Animals. Um, uh, cattle and sheep are blamed for contributing to greenhouse gases, belching out methane, and farmers in the future are likely to be taxed for it. Um, yeah, this is a bit of a controversial issue, Zane. Yeah. Uh, I know um, that uh, people are now talking more about how animal agriculture is a major contributor to climate change. And BZE, Beyond Zero Emissions, who mm-hmm. are following us today, I do believe, <laughs> have put out their land use report um, and they have looked at uh, how animal agriculture is a major co- contribution to, to climate change. There was also that movie that came out, Cowspiracy, in um, 2014 that um, said the uh, environment movement was not willing to talk about this um, and was focusing too much on fossil fuels. Now, here we have an article by Alan Broughton And I know this issue is controversial, so it's good to have the debate within Green Left Weekly. Um, So he's talking about if you uh, manage your your, um, grasslands well, your grazing cattle well, then it's actually good for climate change because it puts more carbon into the soil. He says that the problem is that poorly managed sets stock and overgrazed pastures lose carbon. Hmm. But if you have well-managed uh, grasslands with rotational grazing and adequate recovery time, then they pump carbon into the soil. Now, I know this, is, this, this view is controversial, and uh, people there, there has been some debate about it. Um, he, so um, I think we may have some further discussions about this issue in Greenleaf weekly. Mm. He says that the major problem is lot feeding. Um, It's uh, irresponsible farming activity, uh, highly inefficient, uh, produces poor quality meat and so on and um, a lot of the grain harvest is fed to livestock. So he says in terms of climate change it's the lot fed uh, cattle and so on Um, and we actually need to graze animals doing it better. Now, I'm not quite sure if that, you know, I think that, as I said, is controversial. But um, what I think is really interesting is how do we campaign on animal agriculture? Because it is an important issue. Mm. Uh, Even if he says uh, that if you do it better, you know, it can, can, uh, well, he says, be actually good for the soil in sequestering carbon. Um, But if you, but we're not, we're doing it very badly. Um, I actually think we do need to cut back a lot on uh, red meat because of there's a hell of a lot of land clearing that goes on. Mm. Um, also, and the statistics are there, like the amount oh, of water and, and yeah. feed that, that you've got to basically provide vast amounts of food to that cow that yeah. will then be slaughtered to make beef. Yeah, and, and it's all a lot of, of its grain. Yeah, grain. and grain all that grain, grain could just be eaten by, by people and we could cut out the middle person or the middle bovine, as middle the bovine. case may be. Well, another thing causes methane because they do emit uh, uh, cows and sheep, um, cattle and sheep, sorry, emit a lot of uh, methane and in the short term, 
Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. Uh, so if we want to cut emissions, slash emissions in the short term, which of course we do, then tackling methane is a big thing. Mm. So we really need to talk about, you know, how do we campaign on this? Um, I have written an article for, for Green Left Weekly uh, raising this issue. Hopefully that will be published next, in the next week or so. Um, and, you know, it's something that the climate movement needs to talk about because at the moment what I feel is... It's uh, people who are campaigning on it are taking an individual approach. Mm. They're saying, we must stop eating meat as individuals. Mm. Now, you know, what people do, their personal actions are, of course, important. But the big thing, of course, is to target these big players. Um, you know, the big, the big industry, the, uh, the Meats Association and so on. You mm. know, that, that advertisement, I think, um, for lamb, which was pretty... Well, you know, offensive, I think, though it was, it's been allowed to run, you know, it was deemed offensive to vegans, which it, mm. I think it was, but it's also promoting meat eating, right? In, in a time when climate change, you know, I think this was an opportunity where we could start talking about, well, meat eating is something, a, a big thing that we've got to cut back on in Australia. We're huge meat eaters, and to be promoting more meat eating at this sort of time is, I think, it's crazy. Mm. And other people have commented that the ad is um, pretty, pretty like it, it basically has some pretty like strong military undertones, which uh, absolutely is, is like that's right. Um, um, Jeff Sparrow, I think, had an article in the Guardian, I think, talking about how it's militarising Australian nationalism. I mean, it was mm. rather horrible ad. And, of course, they torched a vegan's house or home, you know, which is uh, why that, you know. But, but the whole thing about rescuing Australians using the military, uh, there was also the, uh, you know, appropriating the term boomerang, uh, which, you know, was quite, I think, offensive to Indigenous Australians on, you know, on Invasion Day, um, you know, because it was for, you know, eat lamb on Australia Day. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of problems with the ad, but I think the whole thing about promoting meat, pushing meat and denigrating those who reject meat, uh, trying to, you know, cast them in almost as the enemy um, by torching their place is really, the, that's the sort of thing that we should be kicking up about. Um, Anyway, I've written about that in the in hopefully in the coming Green Left Weekly, and I think it's a debate we should have. Um, some of the listeners may may be interested, you may, may have some further views on this whole issue of animal agriculture and, and climate change, and particularly this article by Alan Broughton. We'd be happy to see those on Green Left Radio. Yeah, check out the Facebook. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. In, a, in the studio this morning... We have got Andrea Bunting, famous activist from Climate Action Moment. Um, now, some international news. So, Chinese crash raises prospects of a fresh global slump. And so, this is an article in the latest edition, and it's basically looking at the Chinese slowdown and how that's having flow-on effects to other economies particularly places like Australia that have uh, wisely built their economy to a certain extent 
around digging stuff up out of the ground and exporting the raw resources. Um, so the the article talks about the Chinese crash, the uh, sort of steroided growth in the Chinese economy during the sort of resource boom years, and now that's all coming undone. There's a lot of debt in China. Uh, it's not like China was this magical sort of place where they achieved economic growth without racking up dodgy debts and having oversupplies of housing and things like elsewhere. They've actually been doing some fairly similar things um, over there to, to what's brought places like Portugal or Ireland undone with, with housing. Um, and the article finishes by saying, if it crashes, the current Chinese stock market collapse could look like a picnic. Even if financial crashes or cascading bankruptcies are avoided, the overwhelming level of debt worldwide will hobble the economy on the way towards the next recession by leaving financial policymakers with fewer options. In general, national governments and central banks have used conventional tools for responding to economic contractions, like lowering interest rates, for example, to such an extent that they are blunt or broken. Thus, the proposals of liberal economists like Joseph Stiglitz or Paul Krugman to reverse the austerity agenda and increase government spending to stimulate a new expansion, those ideas face the problem that a multi-trillion dollar bailout of Wall Street leaves little room for manoeuvre. And whilst we're seeing that in the pages of Socialist Worker from the US, where that article is from, and in, it's being reprinted in Green Left, there's a similar article in um, the Guardian International News uh, that came out just yesterday. There's a lot of um, paranoia about a... Um, you know, a, a, a new global um, crash. People are saying that it's there's an air that's very similar to just before the 2008 global financial crisis. And um, they're also saying the same thing. The sort of policies that were implemented in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis means there's, there's not much left in the... Um, in the, in the policy cabinet to try and deal with another crash. They've already printed out a whole bunch of cash and given it to banks and, you know, pump-primed the economy like this. And they're, they're in a difficult position to, to just keep printing more money. I guess the uh, impact on this locally too, uh, you know, Australia was supposed to have written out the um, global financial crisis, but this time... Uh, things are looking grimmer in Australia. Um, so, yes, it looks like it's not going to be a good year. Mm. For people here too, I expect unemployment to um, to rise. And, of course, you know, the people in Australia have massive uh, debts too. They talked about the, the overall level of debt in the world economy has grown massively, but I think the personal debt here too is 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 very high, uh, particularly with the cost of housing. So, hmm. you know, we're in for rough times. And there's been uh, back in the, I think it was the, the high point of strike action in Australia, and industrial action was in 1974, 
And coincidentally, Andrea, this was also the time when workers were getting the greatest share of income and capitalists were getting the smallest share of income. Still a heck of a lot of money that they yeah. were skimming off. And, of course, uh, that's when the working week, there was that uh, uh, push to reduce the working week. When I started work in the 70s, <clears throat> you know, we had a nine-day fortnight and the unions were pushing for, for uh, lower working hours. And then, since then, of course, they've just, you know, uh, people are working nominally 40 hours, but, of course, much, much higher hours. Um, so... Yeah, and every time we have a recession, of course, um, you know, the situation gets worse for the working class. A lot, of, you know, more pressure on, um, you know, people in terms of working hours, wages are lower, and so on. Mm. Pressures on the, you know, um, people's working conditions, particularly every time we have a recession, that they they use it to to wind back, uh, you know, some of our. Hard one, mm. right. When ironically, it's people getting paid better and having better paying conditions that will help us get out of this situation that we're in. Well, it's precisely yeah. <laughs> because people's income have been, has been going down while the price of housing and stuff has gone up. Yeah. That, that's landed the economy in, in trouble. Yeah, and, and of course, if people lose their jobs, they're in a very uh, invidious position because, you know... People have de debts to service, well, whereas in the past there was far less level of indebtedness. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting times. Um, mm. Yes. <laughs> Not a good news story. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. Alright, and you are listening to 3CR, 8.55am. This is Greenleaf Radio Breakfast. Um, some more international news. Um, in the aftermath of Venezuela's right-wing U.S.-backed opposition securing its electoral win over President Nicolas Maduro's United Socialist Party of Venezuela in the December 6 elections, the South American country is heading for two confrontations, each reinforcing the other, a political and an economic one. Uh, now, the... Supreme Court in Venezuela has ruled that out of the I think it was 167 members of parliament from the right wing party that were elected three of those people um, were not validly elected or, or at least there needs to be an investigation because there was evidence of I understand vote buying and uh, vote rigging um, the, the Conservative Party has ignored the Supreme Court and has sworn in those three members of, of uh, the Parliament. Now, um, the Supreme Court has turned around and said, no, you can't just sign people in 
swear people into Parliament <laughs> when <laughs> we've said that they've been elected in a dodgy manner. We're saying these three people are not kosher. And there was one other person who was from the PSUV who was also the Supreme Court, had issues with their election. So, um, yeah, there's a... Um, there's stuff's going to go down in Venezuela, it looks like, because the Supreme Court is saying your entire parliament is not valid because you've included people who shouldn't be there in, the, in your voting block. And the, uh, the right-wing government is saying, we don't care what you say, Supreme Court, go away. So, um, and they would still have a majority in the parliament if these three people were not included in it. But they, it's kind of like a matter of principle for the right-wingers. They want to flout what the Supreme Court is saying and do it their way. So, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one issue that looks like one of the main ways that the political clash between the, the people's power, the PSUV, uh, who are now in opposition, and that the right-wing government is going to play out. And then the other thing is the falling oil price. So we just read about this. Um, the, the slowdown of the Chinese economy has affected all different resources, including oil. Oil is like at 40-year lows, or, or it's only been as low as it is now a couple of times in the last 40 years. Mm. Um, and the article points out that for Venezuela, a halving of oil prices means um, not just a halving of government revenue, but a worse than halving of government revenue because um, some of the oil that Venezuela produces is pretty uh, nasty stuff. It's this heavy crude oil and it costs about $27 per barrel to produce. So with the oil prices as low as they are, a lot of Venezuelan oil production is like at break-even or loss-making levels. They're not actually producing any profit. And the whole Venezuelan economy is still very dependent on oil exports, something like 95% of the country's export earnings and uh, 50% of its fiscal budget come from the sale of oil. And there were measures under the socialist government to sort of start to move away from that, but um, evidently they're still very reliant on their oil exports. Yes, of course, that's very important in a time when we're, we're wanting uh, big action on climate change too. So I think it's always been a bit of a contradiction for Venezuela. Mm. And it's very important that they you know, move away from, from the dependency on oil. Um, you know, and of course they, they um, sell oil to, or they give oil to Cuba that's, uh, to help Cuba along too. So I was, I was there last year. Um, so, you know... They, there's certainly very important things that need to be done there because we would hope um, progressive governments, well, the former progressive government in Venezuela, would be taking leading action on climate change. So, yeah, again, interesting times. Hmm. Um, now, it's not in the current print edition, but if you go to greenleft.org.au, there's an article there about... Um, socialists and social justice activists in Malaysia being arrested for holding a peaceful candlelit vigil. Uh, this has been an ongoing issue for the left in Malaysia. There's been like uh, really harsh repression against activists 
just for um oh that's page it's on page 18 ah. all right down the bottom yes so what have, what have we got there andrea malaysian human rights group suaram says that several members of the Socialist Party of Malaysia and other human rights activists were subjected to arbitrary arrests simply for attending a peaceful candlelight vigil in the city of Johor Bahru on January 10th. Hmm. The vigil was called to protest the second time arrest on remand of PSM's Central Committee member Karul Nizam, also known as Akuda Taruna, Karul is being investigated for possible offences under the Sedition Act and the Communications and Multimedia Act as a result of Facebook postings criticising the earlier arrest of another PSM member, Khaled Ismail. Mm. So. Yeah, it looks like that's a um, bit of a flashpoint in Malaysian politics, freedom of speech, and uh, keep an eye on that because I reckon there's going to be a lot more protesting in coming months and years around uh, yeah, opening up that political space for people to be able to protest and you know, have critical comments on Facebook yes, in, in Malaysia. And, of course, there was an article in The Guardian and some other mainstream media doing the rounds this week. Um, there's a new Oxfam report that has found that the richest 62 people on the planet have got more wealth than the poorest half of the global population. Absolutely scandalous, isn't it? What do you even say to that? (laughs) The gap between rich and poor has just widened and widened, widened and widened under neoliberalism. Um, and but now we've got this. This is obscene. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievable statistic, and I think it's very important it's been highlighted. Uh, 62 people. Um, so, you know, where do we go from here? Um, uh, people like Oxfam are sort of, they say, well, we can, we can governments can introduce measures to, to lessen this gap, but this isn't happening. We live in this time of neoliberalism, which is all about enriching the rich. Mm. So, you know, the idea that capitalism can somehow be brought under control so this this doesn't happen anymore, uh, we've got to work out how how do we tackle neoliberalism? We've got to name it. This is, you know, this, this is the agenda of the rich, uh, you know, using the neoliberalist agenda to, to you know, massively increase this gulf and enrich, you know, enrich a very few number of people. Mm. It's very, it's scandalous. But yeah, it's great that it's it's getting out there. That that type of statistic is just staggering. Mm. And it's good good on them for um, you know publicising it. And we need to make more of this sort of thing. Mm. You know, because people, I think, I know there's been some studies in the U.S. about how people actually under they they underestimate the how the disparity between mm. rich and poor quite dramatically. They think uh, the U.S. most people in you know in the U.S. think it's a far more equal society than it is. They have no idea the staggering dif- difference, the staggering disparity. 
between rich and poor. So these sorts of statistics are really important to get out there to, to uh, smash people's delusions, you know, about the, the, you know. And in Australia too, of course, you know, we have this myth that we are egalitarian, but, um, you know, this is happening here too, this widening gulf. So it's really good that we actually start talking about it. So people end their illusions that, you know, <laughs> mm. that uh, we're egalitarian. Yeah, it's, and it's an interesting dynamic because I think during the, during the Cold War, during that post-war period, uh, post-World War II period, you had you know, a lot of Western countries, social democracies, welfare state, sort of still capitalism but sharing the wealth around a bit more as a sort mm. of a, um, a bulwark against communism. It's like, oh, it's okay, we don't have to have a revolution. We can have nice capitalism instead. And of course, uh, in some countries, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> some countries nice-ish capitalism. Yes. Uh, countries of the global south, of course, they still had nasty <laughs> capitalism the whole time. That's right. And then uh, socialism, something that we as socialists have struggled with, is this was a bit of a dirty word because you had Stalinist regimes, uh, you know, being really politically repressive and giving socialism and communism a bad name. Um, since the collapse of the USSR, I think we've seen a, a real kind of rampant rollout of neoliberalism across the whole globe. Mm. And this, this inequality, especially in the last probably 30 years, has just gone out of control. And people's memories of what Stalinism was is fading. There's still kind of China, this sort of state capitalist kind of um, regime over there and, and North Korea. But uh, I think the the communist bogeyman is not something that's you're constantly being warned about on your evening news uh, as much as was the case be between the end of World War Two and like right up to the end of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, yeah, socialism is becoming less of a dirty word and there's massive inequality and... Uh, well, you know, I think it's particularly so among uh, young people the interest in socialism because, of course, the, um, most of them wouldn't remember the um, you know, Cold War period. Um, I read that socialism was the most looked-up word um, on some, you know, I don't know. What the, anyway, uh, uh, the most uh, looked-up word online in 2015. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> So um, perhaps that's uh, perhaps that may have been in the United States. Um, people are beginning to be interested, perhaps because of the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. Mm. Uh, interested in know what what this what does this word socialism actually mean? What is this socialism they what? speak of? <laughs> that sounds pretty good, and of course, you know, some of the old, older people who were were scared off by um, you know, as I said, you know, the Stalinist experience and so on. Uh, maybe quite hesitant, but for young people, oh, well, it sounds it sounds very interesting. And of course, I think in the United States, because um, you know the gap is so wide, even though between rich and poor, even though you know many people don't realise it. And look, I even heard Kim Beasley, ambassador to the United States, say uh, that uh, you know the middle class in the United States hasn't had an increase in their standard of living in 30 years. Mm. Now, if, uh, you know, this is 
this idea that we, of course, talked about before. You know, it's a mainstream idea. So people are, you know, can see, particularly in the US, their standard of living going down. And I think of, this is going to be happening here in Australia too. So people will see that the system, capitalism, is not working for, for us here in the wealthy countries, and it's certainly not working for people in the global south. So, it, again, interesting times as uh, this crisis... But it's up to, I guess, activists to make use of this time when people are starting to question the system more. Word. All right. You're listening to Green Life Radio Breakfast Friday morning on 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on... 3cr.org.au Greenleft Radio is brought to you by the Greenleft Weekly Newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206 For new subscribers it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Focus is a community-based not-for-profit organisation that delivers training, employment assistance and community development projects. Commencing in the new year, eFocus will deliver new qualifications in aged care, disability, home and community care and community services. If you are currently working in the community sector, need to upskill or are looking for a career change in aged care, disability, home and community care or community services, contact eFocus on 9450 5700 for upcoming information sessions. E-Focus is a 3CR supporter. I know you'll be there, I know you'll be there when I call. Alrighty, uh, welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And uh, this morning, I'm hoping it all works, we've got um, Dima Almasodni on the line. Uh, oops. Or perhaps not. Um, I will just try and line that up. But we're going to be talking about the uh, These Cuts Are Killing Us campaign group. Um, yes. So that's what's going on there. Um, one second. I am the uh, work experience person, so I'm just going to be working out the phone. You are listening to 3CR, the community radio station. Uh, Shall I tell them about the rally while you're getting Dima on the phone? That would be good, yeah. If you could just uh, walk us through the uh, the issues there. Okay, well, there there's a, a great article in this week's Green Left Weekly, The New Attacks on Healthcare. Um, I'll tell you a bit about that in a minute. Firstly, of course, on Saturday, February the 20th, so get out your diaries now. Saturday, February the 20th, these cuts are killing us. Defend and extend health care. National Day of Action. Now, in, in Melbourne, people will be rallying at 12 p.m. at the State Library. And there are rallies across the country, um, mostly at, at 1 o'clock. So it really looks like we're the first one. I'll tell you a bit about that. 
Uh, I'll tell you a bit about the issue uh, while... Have you got Dima on the phone? I believe we do. We do? Oh, she can tell you about the issue. Dima, Dima, are you there? Hello, Zane. Yes. Ah, sweet. Hello, Dima. This is Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Hi. All right. So, um, you've just been uh, at a couple of the organising meetings for the These Cuts Are Killing Us campaign. Uh, What What are the key like issues? How these cuts going to affect people? Um. Yeah. So, um, it's one of the latest. attacked by the government on public health care system um, and it has it includes 6.8 billion cuts um, in fees and services uh, the cuts uh, will be uh, major the major cuts will be to the pathology and diagnostic services and will cause people to pay at least thirty dollars for a pap smear urine or blood test um, and up to 173 dollars for an MRI scan um, and they also include um, other cuts to GP uh, fee for service uh, service uh, services and um, some of the over-the-counter medicines. Uh, yeah, and these services should remain free. Uh, it's free healthcare is a human right um, and should remain so uh, accessible to Australians. Hmm. And I, I saw an article um, that was talking about how the the cuts are going to be counterproductive because the uh, by by making it expensive for people to have these preventative procedures like blood tests, urine tests, pap smears, that's going to lead to bigger health costs for the public purse later when people have got cancer and they've got to get expensive treatments. That's right, Zane. But um, yeah, I th- I think uh, it, the approach should be that uh, there's more um, money spent on preventative serv- uh, services and uh, uh, and tactics. But th- I, the government doesn't care. It's just uh, focused on making people pay and privatise services, um, yeah, I guess which that- will end up costing us more in the long run. Um, as yeah, when people are diagnosed with illnesses that they could have maybe had an early detection of and prevented earlier. I guess this is a forerunner too of uh, cuts to um, healthcare in general. So if they're looking at cutting preventative health measures, which would lead to more procedures for people in the future if you don't get that early detection. But you know, if, if, if this is a forerunner for more uh, wider cuts, putting the cost back onto people, then, yes, it is quite insidious. And, Dima, yes. um, how can people get involved in the uh, campaign? Um, so um, they could come to the next um, open organising meeting that's on 6.30pm next Wednesday at the um, uh, Trades Hall in Melbourne. That's City. Wednesday, um, January the 27th? That's right. At 6.30. p.m. in the Trade Hall. Um, and they could also participate in the National Day of Action, which is happening in uh, major Australian cities, including Melbourne. Um, and the rally will be taking place at 12 p.m. in Melbourne outside State Library of Victoria. That's on Saturday, February the 20th, National Day of Action. That's right.
Just on um, the the um, heading for this, these cuts are killing us, but it talks about defend and extend health care. We've really got to get that extend on the agenda too. So I think, uh, like, for example, dentistry is, you know, is something that we've really got to get on the agenda, uh, you know, that people can get free dental care too. So it's not just stopping the cuts, but keeping that extend notion on, you know, in people's minds too. So it's great that that's part of the, the demand. Yes, that's right. Instead of um, cutting already existing um, free serv- healthcare services, the government should should extend those um, uh, those free access um, to healthcare to include dental, um, yeah, going to the dentist, and also um, uh, for gender uh, gender tra- uh, op- operations rather than attacking existing services. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, Dima, thank you very much for talking with us this morning. And, thank you. Uh, yeah, we might touch base with you again as uh, as we get a bit closer to Feb 20. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Dima. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio Breakfast on 3CR. The indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. All right, welcome back. And thank you to Dima Almasodny from the These Cuts Are Killing Us campaign. Uh, All right, a bit of uh, Australian news. Um, On January 13, five crew members aboard the MV Portland were woken at 1 a.m. by up to 30 security guards, handed their passports and forcibly removed from the vessel. The guards then escorted aboard a replacement crew, believed to be foreign seafarers, who immediately began sailing the ship to Singapore, where I understand the ship is to be um, scrapped. And, uh, yeah, MUA National Secretary Paddy Crumlin said there's uh, many unanswered questions about the legitimacy of Alcoa's heavy-handed approach in forcibly removing workers in the middle of the night. Um, Crumlin said, questions need to be asked about the role of Alcoa and the Australian government in this. This is the worst example of guerrilla tactics to get rid of Australian workers since Patrick's. Has Australia learnt nothing since the infamous waterfront dispute in 1998? When did it suddenly become okay to again send in security guards in the dead of night to forcibly remove a workforce? And so the MV Portland has been plying that route for 27 years um, with an Australian crew, and this is about... uh, yeah, getting rid of 
an Australian crewed ship and replacing it with a cheap uh, foreign crewed ship to to save money. Yes, the MUA have said the, that they're, uh, they intend using a workers, um, foreign workers who have paid as little as $2 an hour. Um, so, interesting quote here. This, this sort of thing, people being forcibly removed from their place of work in an orchestrated midnight action should send shivers down the spines of all Australian workers. Absolutely. Hmm. So, yes, again, this push to uh, lower, massively lower wages through these types of tactics. So, you've got to keep people that in people's minds. This sort of thing is happening. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Something. Yeah. Ah, yes. So, um, the Herald's next one. On? Well, I, I just wanted to. Um, oh. This this one is on page fourteen. The next one, page celebrating 14. genocide and conquest. Oh yes, nice. So, yeah, there's an article here about Invasion Day, um, a celebration of, of genocide and conquest of of our invasions overseas, and of course the ongoing dispossession of Australia's first people. Um, and just before we lead into that, here's what was in the Herald Scum on January oh, 20. Gosh. Outspoken Senator Corey Bernardi wants iron ore magnate Gina Reinhart to be crowned Australian of the Year. In an email to supporters, Senator Bernardi says Ms Reinhart, who he calls a friend, has shared her success with Australia and deserves the nation's top honour. Senator Bernardi said it is probably not politically correct to nominate Miss Reinhardt for the award, but says she deserves the honour. Well, well, what can you say? What can you say? <laughs> you, you're, you're not wrong, Senator Bernardi. It's definitely not politically correct. Yes, well... Uh... <laughs> and it's just straight up not correct. I don't think full that's going to happen. Um, so... Yeah, Tony's article, every year it becomes harder to ignore official Australia's celebrations of nationalism. For weeks, the supermarket oils have been given over to garish displays of things to buy for Australia Day on January 26. Australian flags and hats, stubby holders and thongs displaying Australian flags. None of it would look out of place at a Reclaim Australia rally. Uh, and then there's the ad for... Um, the lamb ad featuring Leland Chin. It, it is tongue-in-cheek for sure, showing a military operation to enforce Australians worldwide to barbecue lamb for Australia Day. But the domination of Australian politics so far this century by xenophobic refugee bashing, border security involvement in imperialist wars and the war on terror narrative in, in which failing to adhere to ill-defined Australian values is seen as a security threat makes the ad's aggressive undertone seem only half-joking. Um, and, uh, yeah, since at least the centenary of conquest in 1888, Aboriginal people have protested on January 26, marking it as Invasion Day or Survival Day. The establishment response is to feature Aboriginal inclusion at official Australia Day events and express bewilderment at why Aboriginal people do not see the day as one of celebration and often do not identify as Australian. Uh, yet the basis for the foundation of modern capitalist Australia was the doctrine of terra nullius, which declared the continent unowned and its inhabitants non-people. Uh, 
the genocide that began on January 26, 1788 is uh, possibly the worst in, in human history. Adolf Hitler drew inspiration from it. Shooting, hanging, biological warfare, concentration camps and slavery were used. And um, to this day, uh, policies like the Northern Territory intervention and the West Australian community closures, uh, state and federal governments are denying people basic infrastructure and civil rights and uh, effectively carrying out a policy of ethnic cleansing for the benefit of, of mining corporations. And of course there's that all-important Invasion Day uh, rally on January the 26th. There's mm. an ad for it just under that Tony Ildis' article. Mm. Let's see that the time of the time of it. I'm looking at the Facebook ad. Uh, the time of it on the uh, in the Greenleaf Weekly says 10:30, but now I know I noticed that they just recently updated it to 11:30. However, I'll just say people are assembling at Pastor Douglas and Gladys Nichols statue at 10 a.m. for the smoking ceremony okay. with respect to all Kulin Nation's custodians. Bring flowers to lay on the steps of Parliament to remember our ancestors and get ready to let the country know it is time for justice, treaty and sovereignty. Then uh, people will be rallying at 11.30 at, on Parliament House steps. So that's Invasion Day. Tuesday, January the 26th. Be there. Yes. And I like the poster. It's, it's got the clear sort of for and, demand, uh, and against um, yes. demand. Yes. Well, we should read so those out, shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah. So, so it's for treaty, sovereignty, decolonization, culture, land rights, self-determination, land, land rights, twice, Justice, freedom and respect for the first law of the land. And land rights. <laughs> reckon, <laughs> and the land rights again. Uh, I reckon uh, Gary Foley would be uh, impressed to see the land rights appearing <laughs> twice. With, uh, yes, land rights, land rights and land rights. That's all about. And against land theft and destruction, child removals, deaths in custody, community closures, the recognised con, racism, assimilation and genocide. Mm. All yeah, welcome. Yeah, yeah. Always was, always will be Aboriginal, Aboriginal land. land. Word. So um, that's 11.30 on January the 26th and the smoking ceremony at 10 o'clock. And that's, that's at the Parliament House steps, is that right? The rally is at the Parliament House steps. The um, uh, Pastor Douglas and Gladys Nichols statue, is that around the corner? I don't know. Yeah. I reckon if you're around the general vicinity of Parliament House... You will see people. Yeah. Yes, you'll look like, see where it is. Okay. Oh, we'll be there with bells and whistles. But check out the Facebook event, Eva Invasion Day Melbourne, hosted by Warriors of the Ab Aboriginal Resistance. Yes. All right. Okay, so you can check that out on Facebook. You are listening to this. You are listening to Greenleaf Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Greenleaf Radio is brought to you by the Greenleaf Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information 
which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Alrighty. Um, you are listening to 3CR, 8.55am. This is Green Left Radio, and we've got Andrea Bunting in the studio, special guest this morning. Uh, my name is Zane Alcon. Okay. Uh, we're going to do some activist calendar announcements. So, uh, one thing I would like to give a plug for, and I have an interest to disclose here, which is that I am a member of the Earthworker Cooperative. Um, Earthworker is doing a crowdfund campaign at the moment. Please give generously to Earthworker Cooperative's Give Tanks campaign. All money raised will go to installing co-op-made Eureka's future solar hot water systems in affordable housing run by Aboriginal Housing Victoria down here and Common Equity Housing Properties up in New South Wales. So if you just Google Earthworker Give Tanks and click through, you can donate there. And uh, you'll be supporting a, a very worthy cause and helping to keep the factory ticking along. And I think that closes at the end of the month, isn't that right, the 31st? So better check out the website quickly. Hmm. I, uh, I actually donated as Christmas presents. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it opened before Christmas, so yeah. people could give a, uh, a donation uh, as a gift. Um, now, there's a exhibition here in Smith Street, same street as... Uh, the, the sunny 3CR studios, uh, up the road at Smith Street Gallery at number 69 Smith Street, there's an exhibition, Queer Country. Uh, it's an exhibition of rural LGBTI artists, and it's part of Melbourne's Midsummer Festival. It opens at 4pm tomorrow, Saturday, January 23, and it runs through till February 7, so go and check that out. Uh, we know there's uh, high rates of um, suicide and self-harm, amongst the queer community in general, but especially in, in rural areas where people can, you know, feel a bit isolated and not supported. So, uh, yeah, that, that should be a really good exhibition. Yeah, it's just up the road too. Hmm. And as we just heard previously, regardless of who is PM, all threats to our culture and livelihood still remain. We will not be pacified with bogus corporate-backed constitutional recognition that fails to respect and honour our sovereignty. It's time to unite and turn the tide against genocide for ancestry and future generations. 10am, assemble at Pastor Douglas and Gladys Nichols' statue for smoking ceremony with respect to all Kulin Nation's custodians. And... Um, yeah, heading to Parliament House steps at uh, 10.30, 11 o'clock for the uh, rally, the Invasion Day rally, organised by warriors of the Aboriginal resistance. I'm and you can check them out on Facebook. Zane, I've just checked out where, where the uh, smoking ceremony will be held. So there's the, that's just in Parliament Gardens. Okay, just right. So House. this is this Pastor Douglas and Gladys Nichols statue. It's in, yes. Parliament Gardens, which is just north of Parliament House. Okay. On Spring Street, Albert Street Corner. Great. All right. Um, 
And then there's a forum coming up on Wednesday, February 17th, 6.30 p.m., the meal from 6 p.m., Paris and after, which way forward for the climate movement? And what does the Paris Climate Agreement actually mean? What should the climate movement be focusing on now? And the speakers include your good self, Andrea. Yes, I'm one of the speakers, along with David Spratt, climate activist and co-author of Climate Code Red, and John Englart, who has just uh, been returned from the Paris Climate Talks as a citizen journalist, and we'll be interviewing him soon. This event is also uh, being sponsored by the Sustainable Living Festival. Nice. So that's good. You know that the Sustainable Living Festival is coming up, oh, I think it starts February 6th, with the main weekend the, on the, the following uh, weekend, 13th and 14th. But uh, we, we'll, we will be part of that, so that should be good. That's, that will be held in the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. City. We'll have a Facebook event up for that shortly. All right. You are on Green Left Radio. And this morning we have got John Engelart on the line. And John is an uh, activist with Climate Action Moreland and recently attended the Paris Climate Summit. Are you there, John? Yes, I'm here. Good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning, John. It's Andrea. Uh, hello, Andrea. Hi. Uh, yes, John and Andrea are Climate Action Moreland comrades from way back. So, uh, John, tell us about the, the Paris Climate Summit. There was, there was much hype at the end of it. Some um, environmental groups and, and some news reports were saying, yay, this, this kind of puts us on course for just one and a half degree rise in global temperatures and maybe we're going to save those ice caps. Is, is that true? Well, the Paris Agreement actually, it's um, a mixture. It, in one sense, it was very positive in giving us that um, uh, well below two degrees, aspiring for 1.5 degrees temperature target, which the... Um, Least developed countries, the Climate Vulnerable Forum, actually pushed very hard for. And that was far more than we were expecting going into the conference. So that was very positive. And um, along with that temperature goal, there is also the goal to decarbonise by the latter part of the century. So that's also very important. But as uh, many people would know, the commitments by countries um, that they made would have us, uh, at the very best case, on a pathway to 2.7 degrees and more likely 3.5 degrees of warming this century. So the commitments at the moment don't match up the goals that the governments have already stated. Now, it was an amazing thing that 195 countries made this agreement. Hmm. So it was, it is an historic agreement, um, but uh, at the moment, the commitments by the countries don't match the goals enshrined in this agreement and the science. 
the science of what is what we need to do to limit warming to well below two degrees and even reach one point five degrees of warming. Mm. I think the one point to even get to one point five degrees, it's based on the idea that we could have massive negative emissions. So drawing down carbon dioxide. Is, what do you think? Uh, was there much talk about how they proposed to do that? Well, no, there wasn't a lot of talk about um, negative emissions technologies. A lot of that is still in um, the early re research work. Like, there are a number of processes at the moment for negative emissions, drawing down emissions. Um, but they're very in the very early research stage. So some of it involves um, uh, biomass. Uh, so you um, bi uh, biomass to burning biomass to capture the carbon to then um, store the carbon underground or to try and fix that carbon in some way um, and store it. Yeah, and of and course there's conflict all, with food you know, We have to develop that within the next 30, 35 mm. years' mm. time. Mm. But it's conflict with uh, for the land use for food production too. So um, the ability to be able to do that on a very large scale you know, is going to be very problematic too. I think you know, it seems to be premised on the idea that some, something will come up, some technology will, will come up. Uh, rather than having any idea about how it's going to happen. Yeah, so. precisely. I mean, I think it's really important that there is um, a lot of research goes into the area of um, negative carbon emissions, um, but um, uh, we shouldn't hope for um, necessarily any great success mm. of yeah. any of these projects. Now, um, so we really need to rapidly decarbonised yeah. now, as fast as possible. Yeah. So I'm interested to know how was how Australia viewed? Uh, because, of course, in the, part, in the previous year, we were a major disgrace. We won many Fossil of the Day awards, and I think we were the colossal fossil. Um, so this, and this time, late last year, of course, uh, we had a new Prime Minister, slightly different approach. So how is Australia viewed and what were your impressions of Australia's response? Um, okay, well, well I was actually an accredited NGO delegate um, so I was hearing some of the um, behind the scenes news of what's ha happening in the negotiations and I was hearing that our um, diplomats there were actually being uh, quite flexible and positive in putting forward bridging proposals to try and get this uh, agreement up and running. So our diplomats were actually working very hard and very positively, but our politicians weren't necessarily doing the same thing, such as uh, Julie Bishop's uh, statement in regards to coal, which ended up winning Australia our... Uh, Bottle of the Day Award. Yes, we did manage to win one this time, yes. didn't we? But I guess that's an improvement on the previous year. And what was her statement again? Let them eat coal? <laughs> um, no, 
she uh, made a statement to, it was the Forum on Sustainability at the Indonesian Pavilion. Okay. Um, and what, so, do you remember what she actually said? Uh, I don't have it uh, with me. Coal will remain critical to promoting prosperity, growing economies, and alleviating hunger for years to come. Ah, yes. The same old line. Because deglaciating the Himalaya that two billion people rely on for food and water is an excellent way of alleviating poverty, isn't <laughs> it? Now, interestingly, uh, I see that the, uh, fossil fuels aren't mentioned in the, in the Paris Agreement. Is that so? That's right. Not once are uh, fossil fuels mentioned, nor what? is the word decarbonisation mentioned. Uh. It wasn't even mentioned. So uh, was there much talk about that at, at, at Paris, that the uh, people trying to, to, to get that in the agreement? Not at the time that it was being negotiated, but the um, agreement actually went through a number of drafts, so there were a number of issues um, in the um, various drafts of the agreement which made it actually stronger, such as the emissions of uh, aviation and shipping. They amount to 5% of global emissions, and they're one of the fastest uh, rising sectors for emissions. Um, they were in the draft agreement right up until before the final text when they got chopped off. So not they included. don't exist anymore, hey? They, <laughs> how can you not include a, the one, you know, fastest growing um, yeah, emission source? That's, That's right. Yeah. But obviously there was compromises done to get the um, agreement um, settled mm. and that was one of the compromises it got yeah. chopped yeah. and the other thing is there were all there was also mention of human rights gender equality indigenous rights in the operative text um, which makes a real difference legally mm. and it, uh, that was also chopped from the operative text so it now just remains in the preamble of the agreement. Oh, okay. So they've actually um, reduced the um, binding uh, language in regards to human rights. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to do a quick uh, announcement. We'll be back in a moment. We've got John Angler from Climate Action Moreland who attended the Paris, the Paris <laughs> Pirate Summit, the Paris Climate Summit with you <laughs> on 3CR this morning. Uh, we'll be back uh, talking to you in a second, John. Don't go anywhere. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. Alrighty. So, um, I understand, John, you stuck around for a while uh, in Paris and you linked up with some grassroots activists over there and you went to a, a couple of protests or, or a, a protest? Yeah, I was in uh, Paris for a few weeks. I was actually in France for seven weeks. So I was there at the time um, when the terrorist attacks happened. Yeah, right. And, of course... That changed the mood entirely, and the French um, climate 
organisers had to change their um, plans for the protest. Literally overnight, they'd spend months building their, the protest up and they had to change their plans. And, of course, it's very difficult organising in those circumstances. 24 of them were put under house arrest. That's so, incredible, yeah. isn't it? I mean... <laughs> and that is with a French president, right? There yeah. was a ban on um, public street protest put in place. Yeah. So on the November 29th, when we had 60,000 people marching in Melbourne, I think on the Friday night, yes, that's right. Um, they were hoping to have a large protest in uh, Paris, but um, they had to change um, what was to take place. So they, instead they had the thousands of shoes of, in the Place de la Republic, mm. which included shoes by... Thank you, Moon, and the Pope. Mm. And so they, they also they had a human marched, chain yeah. along mm. the Boulevard de Voltaire, mm. which mm. probably had several thousand people involved. Mm. So that was a way that they could gather, but it wasn't all as one large group, but a human chain down the footpath. Mm. And th was there much discussion amongst activists of trying to defy that ban and march anyway? Or did yes, there was, but it was felt by the um, French activists that it was important to um, take into account the mood in terms of the terrorist attacks. This was literally just within two weeks of those attacks. And eight, over 80 people got killed at the Bataclan Theatre, which is on the um, Boulevard Voltaire. Hmm. So they had to take that into account in um, organising a protest. So that's why they had it. It was more muted on November 29th. But for December 12th, they wanted to finish with a large protest. So over the two weeks of the conference, they organised uh, civil disobedience training and they organised two events and they were going to have a mass protest, no matter what happened. As it happened, the French state actually approved their meetings in the last 24 hours. Mm. So there was actually um, a gathering near the Eiffel Tower and another one near the Arc de Triomphe, a Red Lions protest, and the Red Lions protest actually marched to the Eiffel Tower. Hmm. Well, that, that, that's, that's great that happened. Uh, but it was very disturbing at the start that uh, climate activists' voices were being silenced um, when I heard uh, they were allowing other public gatherings, sports events, markets and so on, but banning uh, public protests for the climate march. So it seemed to be quite a contradiction there that they were just targeting climate activists. Of course, people would want to be sensitive because, you know, many people had been killed. Um, but it did seem to be rather specific to targeting the climate activists. Did you get that impression, John? Uh, yes, and the um, climate activists there in France pointed that out, that um, the same security requirements weren't directed at other public gatherings mm. like football games, Christmas street markets, um, so they knew that the security situation had changed, yet 
the ban seemed to only apply to um, political gatherings and particularly climate political gatherings, yeah. um, the g- gatherings of civil society. So there were, during that two weeks, lots of small protests happening um, around Paris, outside some of the um, corporates um, who are the strong polluters. Um, there was also a festival in uh, Montreux, which is one of the outlying suburbs, so a festival of alternatives, and there were quite a few uh, public discussions and debates, lots of street stalls happening at that festival. Um, so there was still quite a lot of action happening around Paris. There was a uh, business forum uh, on climate change, um, and activists actually succeeded in disrupting that by uh, gaining entry and then doing a public tour of the exhibits <laughs> um, with activists getting up and telling the real story of some of these companies and what they were doing <laughs> oh, in good South on them. America good on them. or Australia no. or Asia. Yeah, nice. I think uh, I saw a few people getting carried out of there. <laughs> a lot of people got carried out of there. Um, but, um, yes, for at least one day, they effectively closed down that ex- exhibition. Well, that's, that's great news, yes. And I hear the, the, the Climate Angels got a lot of uh, publicity too. I think they're appearing at the Sustainable Living Festival talking about it. Yes, that's something um, to look out, out for. Yes, uh, they actually were there at the same time as I was, and so they were going round um, to some of these little protests. They had their own little blockade of NG, and NG changed their name from GDF Sewers, who are the majority owner of the Hazelwood Power Plant in the mm. Latrobe Valley. That's right. Well, I think we, we're uh, getting the wrap-up signal. We just, um, if you want to hear more from John Engler and me and David Spratt, then uh, we have a forum on Wednesday, February the 17th, which way forward for the climate movement after Paris at um, the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street in the city. All right, looking forward to that. Yeah. Unpack yeah, some of these issues. So we'll talk further. some more then, John. And thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks heaps. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Catch you around. See you. All right, and thank you, Andrea. Thank you. It was great to be here, except for the early start. <laughs> Seven o'clock. <laughs> All right, stick around because uh, Beyond Zero Emissions crew. The Beyond Zero Emissions Massive are just outside the door, ready to come in and rock your world on Melbourne's most rad radio station, 3CR. Thanks, and bye for now. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 
For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.